Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, we're going to play an interview from the 2018 Code Conference, which I co-produced with Recode's executive editor, Peter Kafka. This is an interview that Peter and I did with Senator Mark Warner, the vice chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Let's take a listen. We don't need a warm-up for Senator Mark Warner, We don't need a, war- right? a warm-up. Let's bring this him upstage. This is Senator Mark Warner. He is the vice chairman of the Senate, a select committee on intelligence, and he's been busy this year. So let's bring him out. Thank you, sir. Put you over here. You want me here? Oh, so <clears throat> can I call you Mark and not Senator Warner? Because I knew you. Call you... me whatever you'd okay. like. Well, Phyllis. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so I met you when you were a VC. In, back in D.C. Yeah. when I worked for the Washington Post. I can still claim I've got a year or two more being on the tech side and the V.C. side, wireless side, than I have been in politics. Absolutely. I mean, we, telecom, we, it was a lot of stuff because D.C. was the sort of the font of telecom and early Internet. Um, but now you're where you are. So let's start with the, the, the report that you put out. Let's start with that. We've got a lot of things to talk about from privacy, China, use of social media, uh, hacking, cybersecurity, there's a lot of stuff going on. Lots of stuff. Lots of stuff. So let's talk about the report and sort of the discrepancy between the House report and the Senate sure. report and how you look at where you are right now. Well, I never thought that um, I would be this engaged in you know, one of the wildest things I've ever been involved in, the, the notion that a foreign country, an adversary, decided to massively intervene in our election. And what they did, and and this part, there's agreement from Democrat to Republican, from Obama official to Trump official, virtually everyone other than the president agrees with three things. One, Russia massively intervened in the election, hacked both political parties, decided to release information that would help Trump and hurt Clinton. Second thing they did was they scanned or broke into, mostly didn't get into the actual vote totals, but they scanned or broke into 21 states' electoral systems showing how vulnerable our electoral systems were. And then third is they used social media. We initially thought just with paid advertising, but really paid advertising was a tiny component of an otherwise well-organized effort with internet trolls, bots, and the whole notion of fake accounts in a way that caught the United States government, and I think, for the most part, the platform companies off guard. We've gone a year into this. We basically came out in a, in a normal world reconfirming what the intelligence community had already said would not be that much news, but because the House investigation has gone so far off the rails and become so partisan, you know, they basically tried to walk away from the facts and said there was not intervention on behalf of Trump. No one who's looked at this on an objective basis um, would deny they had a favorite. It was obvious. They, they played for that favorite. They were a little surprised as much as we were when he won, mm-hmm. um, but they had a clear intent. Where we are now is we've gone through the election security piece, and we should all, while we've got people focused on 2020, 2018, it's a big election year, obviously, and our systems are not fully safe enough. You know, we got to make sure every voting machine in America has a paper trail. We got to make sure folks have got appropriate clearances. Uh, again, in a normal administration, you have somebody in charge of election security working out of the White House because they're state, local, and federal. We don't have that. So our committee, which has been pretty bipartisan, has laid out some plans. Um, we're going to do the, we did the intelligence community assessment reaffirming that. We will say what Obama administration did right and what they did wrong. We'll have a piece on social media uh, that'll probably come late summer with some recommendations on where we head there. And then we've got the big 
the big question, which is uh, the collusion question. And I'm reserving judgment on that until we've had all the witnesses in. But the, the amount of contact between individuals affiliated with the Russian spy services and folks that were at least affiliated with Mr. Trump, um, it's unprecedented. You're, so, you're, you're the ranking guy. Democrat on the Intel Committee. You came out with this report that in a normal world would be extraordinary, right? You, all the things you just listed. Um, in part, I guess, because some of this had been come out through the, through the intelligence agencies already. But in a normal world, this would be a giant news story. Um, are you frustrated and or worried the stuff your committee is putting out is not getting enough audience? I think what's happening is you know, people's attention span lag a little bit. And when you've got the president out every day basically trying to undermine, he didn't focus on us as much, I get occasionally tweeted at, um, but when he focuses entirely on the Mueller investigation, this is not the actions, I would argue, of someone who, who has nothing to hide. I mean, when he constantly comes back with these attacks, and what worries me beyond the fact that people have kind of got um, exhaustion from the day-to-day -day, uh, back and forth of this story, you know, what, what worries me beyond the the Russians themselves or, or the collusion issue, but the president's willingness to kind of make broad-based ad hominem attacks against the whole integrity of the FBI, the whole integrity of the Justice Department, beyond just the Mueller investigation, criticize his own people who are not willing to do inappropriate things, like shut down the investigation. And what I think he does with at least some of his allies, they're starting to undermine rule of law. And there are plenty of episodes in history when people start to decide, well, I'm going to follow this law, but not follow that law because somehow the legitimacy of law enforcement is going to be put in question. That puts you in a pretty dangerous territory. So what, what can you guys do to, to, to push back? It seems like he's winning this battle of, uh, and that he's plus got a big combination of, of exhaustion on the American public's part and, and institutions which is sort of held up but are under attack. What, what can you do personally? I think there's, I think there's three things. One, and I'd like to see more of this, people across the country, uh, particularly folks that aren't necessarily partisan, but former judges, prosecutors, whatever, they ought to stand up in their own community and say, hey, you know, rule of law needs to trump any individual president. And no one is above, no one is above the law. And that kind of grassroots ste stepping up, uh, you know, when, how hard can that be when we're talking about basic integrity, like things like the FBI and, and the Department of Justice. Two, we're going to need, and, and I think even the Mr. Trump's appointees, the FBI director, the director of national intelligence, the host of others, you know, we got last week to a, an area where President got, or some of the allies, his allies, got very close to asking uh, these intelligence community leaders basically to violate, if not the law, long-standing American traditions where you'd have to reveal the identity mm -hmm. of an informant. You know, the truth is spy services use informants in lots of ways. That's, that is, uh, has been part of the history of the business. Um, but when you force people to take completely unorthodox positions and break traditions and laws, that would be another point where there'd be this moment of potential moment of crisis. And third is, uh, I think in some small way, maintaining the Senate Intelligence Committee as a bipartisan effort, and that's taken, uh, there's a well, lot of paddling that, underneath the, underneath the well, service, so that validates as well when Mueller will come right, out. What's going on beneath the surface? How difficult is it? Listen, there's, there's enormous pressure. Uh, on this committee, I've got on one end, you know, a, a Tom Cotton, and the other end, uh, you know, 
Kamala Harris and Ron Wyden. You know, so you, we span the ideological spectrum. Mm -hmm. And there's enormous pr pressure on some of the Republicans to say, hey, you know, it's time to get this thing over. Let's shut it down. Let's not go ahead and see the balance of the witnesses because there continues to be no additional meetings or other things that pop up that need some investigation. On the other hand, on the Democratic side, there's a lot of pressure to say, hey, you know, of course there's collusion. Call this guy out as guilty t tomorrow. Don't wait for the process to, to finish. And so we're trying to maintain our equilibrium at the same time to try to protect Mueller and Rosenstein for, where they have a lot more tools than we do. They're doing a criminal investigation. We're doing a counterintelligence investigation. Um, but I do think you know, the notion for those who um, may be partisans in the crowd and say, well, gosh, if the Democrats take control, they'll be able to really ramp these up. I think the American public will be, uh, will be tired of it if this is not wound down in this calendar year. All right, let's Hopefully talk about what happened uh, on the things. We talked about it. We were together last night. We were talking about a bunch of things. First, what the Russians did in the, the things you mentioned, the buckets. They, I, I do want to get to privacy and tech companies, yeah. too. But uh, let's talk about what they did. You were talking a lot about the need for the United States to step up, step up its cybersecurity efforts and how we spend so much money on an on a airplane, and the Russians spent a, made a small investment in cybersecurity and had enormous uh, benefits from it. Well, if you, if we should have actually been able to predict more of this, uh, because a lot of the tactics that Russia used in 2016 in America, they'd used in Ukraine, Estonia, other Eastern European nations for a while, and they actually l laid out their game plan back in 2011 when their equivalent of their chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, a guy named General Garamazov, basically said Russia can't compete with the West with tanks, trucks planes, ships, traditional military. But they but can't afford it. In, can't afford it. But in the era of misinformation, disinformation, which Russia and previously the Soviet Union was pretty good at, yeah. in the age of asymmetrical conflict with cyber, they can compete. And candidly, in those categories, they are every bit as good. And on the misinformation front, they're actually better uh, than we are. So uh, the point I bring up sometimes is Congress just passed a uh, late, as always, but a, a big defense budget, $700 billion. Russia's got a defense budget of $68 billion, but in the realm of cyber and misinformation, they are our peers, and I feel like we may be buying the world's best 20th century military, mm -hmm. but when conflict in the 21st century will, I think, be in the realm of the cyber domain and misinformation. So what does that mean, that intelligence? Now, this is something the United States had done for, it's been going yeah, around the world, messing This is up not a, a critique just to the Trump administration. The last 15 years, the United States of America has not really had a cyber doctrine. For the most part, business until very recently has wanted to kind of, you know, have this program be done at the CTO or CSO level, not at the CEO level. Government it doesn't fit neatly into any category, and we still do have enormous distinctions between you know, if somebody originates a post in, in St. Petersburg and it pops up in Los Angeles, you know, our government will, the CIA and the NSA will check out what's going on in Russia, FBI and DHS will check out what's going on in America, and it sometimes fall, things fall between the cracks. Mm -hmm. And we have been so, we were for I think a decade plus so concerned about any kind of cyber escalation, because we were more technologically dependent, that while we would take on kind of second-tier second states, North Korea, Iran, ISIL, what have you, with near-period adversaries like China and Russia, 
they've been basically, from intellectual property to messing with our systems, um, stealing us blind. And now more recently, intervening in our most vulnerable spot, kind of taking advantage of our open system to try to intervene in the democracy. So it's, it's, I think a cyber doctrine would include things like the notion that there ought to be some kind of almost international treaty or convention around what cyber tools can be used and which ones, frankly, just ought to be off the map. Mm -hmm. And if then a country did use those tools, uh, we ought to make clear that we're going to, you know, potentially respond in, in kind. I think you know, there's some low-hanging fruit uh, that I've got some legislation on that would take us in the right direction. You know, we got 10 billion IoT-connected devices. We're gonna go to 25 billion in the next, you, know, you guys would know better than I, five years. I think at least when the federal government goes out and buys any IoT device, it ought to have at least minimum security, so it ought to be patchable. It ought to you know, not have an embedded passcode. Some, at least, de minimis standards there. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think we ought to think through, you know, what kind of world we live in if Equifax can get away with not doing a patch and exposing 150 million of fellow Americans' personal information, particularly when we didn't even have a customer relationship. There ought to be some liability there. Yeah. I think something's wrong when Yahoo's got 500 million uh, users hacked into, and that was not even material enough to report in their SEC filings. So there are things that we can do from the national and international perspective there are some legislative issues here there are you know, things like we could do around iot um we have a publicly funded military we right? have a publicly funded military, want. but not and then when it comes to cyber right we're asking everyone in this room to sort of take care of it on their own is that sustainable does that does more of that responsibility have to become well, we do the, have, the government you know, we do have you know, cyber was kind of like homeland security uh in the sense that it got really hot in the last five years in government and every branch of government has gotten now some piece of cyber. Uh, every one of the, of the military branches, obviously the NSA, Cybercom has been created. I think we still have not sorted out where the, bear, where the boundaries are between um, you know, government activity and private sector. And people understandably are reluctant to have mandated cyber standards that if they got stuck in stone and weren't able to move as technology move, that'd be a bad thing. The flip side is when the only thing we've ever done legislatively so far in cyber is a pretty weak need information sharing bill. And when it comes to critical infrastructure, certain other things, I'm just not sure that's gonna But what about in terms of resources? Again, like Sony was responsible essentially for defending itself against North Korea. Should there be some sort of really robust arm of the, of the government, whether it's the military that's, that's sort of responsible for all things, this stuff? One of the things, I think there will be that shared responsibility. One of the things that the government does a really crummy job on is communicating to the community and tech per se. I mean, most folks in tech don't like to get a, um, don't want to take a meeting with the FBI, but that's the folks that we normally have as the first outreach level. One of the areas that I that I've gotten kind of obsessed about in the last two years, as President Xi has consolidated power in China. I think he has um, taken a situation where a lot of these Chinese tech companies already were much too collaborative with their government and, and now China has a very aggressive effort to kind of steal our technology, invest in our early stage companies. Many of the students that come over come with a, a mission of going back with technology. Yet we do a really poor job 
of notifying you know, VCs, university presidents, companies uh, the, of the threat. And we gotta up our game, and we've, that goes into problems like classification issues, but if we have all the Obama administration people and all the Trump security administration people all saying that Huawei and ZTE pose national security risks, I think we ought to listen to them and not simply use that as a trading chip. I'm not sure this president actually listens to his own national security folks, but it is a national security concern and ought to be treated as such. We're going to take a quick break now from a word from our sponsors. We'll be back with this interview from the Code Conference after this. Today's show is brought to you by OneBlade. A lot of men struggle with shaving. From ingrown hairs to razor burn to just overall skin irritation, it's a painful chore that most men don't enjoy. Now there's a razor that takes the pain out of shaving and makes it an enjoyable experience that you actually look forward to. It's called OneBlade. OneBlade will give you the best shave of your life with no razor burn or ingrown hairs. It's been obsessively engineered to be the optimal tool for performance shaving. From the perfect pivot and weight to the finest materials, such as ultra high-grade German stainless steel. It's an heirloom quality razor you can pass down for generations. Each one is hand assembled and serial numbered. And every one blade is backed by a full 60-day money-back guarantee and a lifetime warranty. So if your family has been asking what you want on Father's Day, give them this URL, onebladeshave.com slash recode. Just for Father's Day, you'll receive a free Yeti Rambler with all razor purchases. Visit onebladeshave.com slash recode. I'd also like to tell you about one of our other podcasts, Recode Media with Peter Kafka. Peter, who'd you talk to this week? Kara, this week I talked to two awesome guests, Jessica Pressler, the great New York magazine writer, and Ken Aletta, the great New Yorker magazine writer. We talked about Ken's new book, which is called Frenemies. It's about the ad tech business and Facebook. Uh, we also talked about Ronan Farrow and how Ken helped Ronan Farrow bring the Harvey Weinstein story to New Yorker. I talked to Jessica. We talked about her amazing story about the New York grifter. It's one of the great stories of the year, which is why we spent nearly half an hour talking about a single story, how she puts a story like that together. I really enjoyed both these conversations and you will too. Sounds great, Peter. You can find Recode Media on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Our legislators, let's go to the Facebook hearings, for example, didn't seem quite up to speed on things. Um, I think that's- You think? Yeah, I think, I think. What did you think? I was glad I was not on that committee. Okay. I was kind of bummed at first because I thought, you know, I wanted, because I want to get all three, you know, from Facebook, Google, and Twitter in, and I thought, oh God, they're going to leap to it. Then I was saying, oh my God, you know, this is an embarrassment. Right. Um, and, and that's a challenge. I mean, the, to try to sort people up through cyber, you know, obviously some of my colleagues didn't understand how social media works and what the business model is. Um, the only good news here is there's nothing inherently democratic or republican about a national security strategy that's built around, has cyber as a major component. There's nothing in, inherently you know, liberal or conservative about notions of how you put some guardrails around the ecosystem of social media. But you have to know how to do it or know what to do. I mean, do you think Facebook, or I'm using Facebook as just one, but you talked about Twitter and Google and others. Do you think they've been properly looked at by legislators? And where do you think it's coming in terms of regulation? I think, and again, we've, I've gone back and forth with, with Cheryl and Zuckerberg and a lot of the folks at Facebook on this. You know, at first they blew, blew off this threat. 
I first raised it in you know, December of 16. They said, no, it's crazy. Nobody, you know, politicians thinking Russia intervened. You know, by the French elections, they were bragging about the fact they'd taken down 30,000 Russian-affiliated accounts mm -hmm. that were in, intervening in France. Um, so I think they were slow to the game. I think you know, last week when they came out with some of their new transparency tools, pretty darn good. Uh, but transparency around paid political advertising, I just don't think it's going to be enough. That is not really where the, where the rubber hits the road. Where the rubber hits the road is misinformation and disinformation in, in terms of somebody saying they're Karab here, but actually being in Moscow mm -hmm. and having that fake identity. And we're still chasing, in a sense, static 2016 fake accounts. Next wave, as this crowd knows, you can talk about deep fake technology and you can put somebody's literal vision, you know, video image and face and voice real time streaming a message to you and that have no connection to that real person. Cheryl and Mark now say, look, we're spending a ton on humans to look at this stuff near term and we're, we're working on programming as fast as we can. We're, we're in the, we know this is a, a spy versus spy game, but we're serious about it now. Do you, do you believe that they're putting I their think, best work listen, into it? I, I don't think... We're going to reduce our profits. Here's, here's my belief is, if we have some major event using the platform companies where the markets are rocked because of uh, some misinformation or disinformation or an election is clearly um, uh, overcome, you will have Congress overreact. What I've been trying to reach out, the platform companies say, work with us on the front end because if you leave it to Congress after a bad event, we'll screw it up. So that means I think they need to lean in more. This issue is not gonna go away. And you know, I, what we need is a, I would argue is we need a, we need to at least start the debate. And I would argue there's, again, probably three buckets and I'm, I don't have a, uh, I got some ideas, but I don't have a firm answer on where this ought to head because none of these are, are ideal solutions. I mean, you have one around identity and misinformation, disinformation. That would go from, you know, do you need a, a fresh look at Section 230, which exempts all these companies from being treated as media companies? Should there be some same responsibilities that you have at Vox? You know, there's questions around, should you have at least some geographic indicator of a post originates, if somebody says they're posting from yeah, here in America, it originates on a foreign basis. Should you have some identity requirement for actual identity validation? That may make sense in America, it may not make sense if you've got a journalist that's trying to write important things in a place like Egypt or Saudi Arabia. You know, so there's, should you have at least the right to know whether you're being talked to or communicated with by a human being or a bot? So there's identity uh, and misinformation bucket. There are series around privacy. You know, do you look at what the Europeans did? Can you look at, at uh, you know, should there be some kind of fiduciary duty the platform companies or others have um, uh, about your data? You know, there's questions around competitions. You know, I'm an old telecom guy used to be a real pain in the ass to be able to move from one telco to another until we legislated number portability. Should there be data portability so that, yes, you can get off Facebook or get off Google, but can you take all of your cat videos with you mm -hmm. and make it easily portable but, to another site? But, so but, these but, are but, at see, least that might have been have the debates. problem, this data portability, was the issue with Cambridge Analytica. I mean, they were pushing well, data Well, you could actually, you know, one way, and again, I'm not saying this is the right answer, you could say you, you can only give first-person approval 
to someone to use your data. So there was no second or third tier approval process. Or you could say you own your data forever and the platform companies have a responsibility of somewhat compensating you so you could, that would create a market circumstance where you might have intermediaries between you as the individual and the platform company. I don't know what's the right answer. I don't, and I don't, let me be clear, this is an area of enormous innovation. The last thing I'd want to do is stifle that innovation or kneecap American companies when you've got Chinese companies one step behind, you know, continuing to go for and American companies and doing unnatural acts to get into China. Correct? And, and American companies you, basically giving away the birthrights to try to get into the Chinese. You've mentioned China now a few times. Obviously, a big issue for you. How do you balance sort of legitimate uh, security concerns versus the perception and reality that that you know fending off Chinese competition is protectionism? Um, and we're not actually trying to worry about our security, we're just trying to keep competitors I out think, of the country. I think that um, you know, maybe in traditional industries that'd be the case. In tech, you know, I think they are, Chinese are operating on a different set, a different rule book than we are. I don't think, you know, it is a market economy with a giant asterisk that says their government will force foreign-based companies, not just American companies, you to, they will censure them, they will do things that companies will respond to they would not respond to in any other nation in the world. Secondly, the major Chinese tech companies, Alibaba, Badu, Tencent, the host of others that this crowd knows about but most of the folks I work with don't know about, or the, the telco companies, the Huawei's and the ZTE's and others, they are all penetrated deeply by the Chinese Communist Party. And I believe at the end of the day, owe at least as much allegiance to their government as they do to their shareholders or their business plan. And third is their willingness to come over in a much more, not just whole of government, but whole of society way to steal um, outside technology. That's a real deal and we don't, if I get skeptical looks on this, that is a failure of me and the intelligence community to present that case to everybody in this room well, so what do you want to convince them. So what do you want from Silicon Valley, from this crowd? Everyone here is trying to get into the Chinese market or they're already in it or the supply chain is deeply enmeshed in there. Do you want them to pull out? I, what I'd like them to do is to be cautionary. If that deal, if somebody's coming in offering you on early stage Chinese BAP that's 2X what anybody else is offering you, maybe it's worthwhile pausing. As we think about, um, you know, wireless providers, local governments, others. I worry, you know, buying some of the Chinese hardware because it's a lot cheaper. There's no American telcos left or telecom equipment left because it's a lot cheaper than the Europeans. You know, there may be a reason for that. I, I think often one of the things that maybe um, uh, you know, scarred me was um, Kaspersky Labs, the Russian-based company that clearly was tied in, into Russia. It took, we realized that in 2013, it took us till 2017 to get it off the GSA acquisition list. Even though everyone in the intelligence community said, these folks are bad actors. Do you think actors. people are willing to really take a serious hard look at, at where the money is coming from, whether it's China, whether it's, it's Russian investors, other sovereign nations, other sovereign wealth funds? Investing? I think if that money comes with ties, and in a world where, con I go back again to where I think conflict will take place, if conflict is going to be less in the 21st century of rockets firing at each other, but instead manipulation of data, manipulation of information, um, 
then yes, I think people, I hope, will recognize if a deal's too good to be true, there may be a reason for that. All right, I'm gonna ask you one quick question before we get to question for the audience. We, you, you referenced Donald Trump tweeting at you. The impact of social media and things like Twitter, you've been scolding of Twitter and others. How do you think he uses that? Is he effective? Is he? I think he's brilliant. I think he's, you know, I think he's brilliant using it, but it's... What it's, has it done to politics? What, it, what, it's, what it's done, though, is it's almost like you know, one of the things that some of the platform companies we've, we've talked through a lot is I don't think they necessarily come with a political bias. But their algorithms are such that if you're reading a story on the left, the next story has to be more outrageous to get your eyeballs to go to the next, and you just keep feeding the beast. And in certain ways, that's what the president has done. He keeps finding whatever the mean, uh, the, the traditional approach, and it becomes each and every day, each and every week, slightly more outrageous. Um, and at some point, whether it is in the firing of, of Mueller in that investigation, whether it's asking the intelligence community or the FBI uh, to give up classified information inappropriately for partisan purposes. I think we're going to have that, that moment where all of us in this room are going to have to decide on which side of the line we stand. Uh, you don't think we've hit that line already? I think we have, for a lot of the, the men and women I work with, on, that I'm great friends with on the Republican side. We've not hit it with them, but I think we're, you know, we get amazingly close. We got closer last week uh, than I think people realized when the White House and some of its allies were trying to force um, revealing of classified information to a Republican-only briefing on intelligence. That's just not the way any administration has operated in the last 70 years. And when that line gets crossed, what happens? When that line gets crossed, an awful lot of the senators I work with said, don't worry, Mark, I'll be there if he crosses that line. We'll see what happens. All right, on that note. Questions? Nothing like cheering you all up in the morning session here. <laughs> Other than that, how is the theater, Mrs. Lincoln? <laughs> We're gonna take another break to thank sponsors who bring this show to you. We'll return to this interview from the Code Conference after this. Today's show is brought to you by IBM. By 2050, the world population will reach nearly 10 billion and food production will need to grow by 70%. What if artificial intelligence could help? Farmers are already using it to help increase crop yields. Watson and the IBM Cloud provides access to weather data and analyze satellite imagery to help them monitor soil moisture levels and to reduce water waste. So as the population grows, more food can be put on tables. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com smart. If you like Recode Decode, then you should also check out TechMeme Ride Home. If you're not familiar with techmeme.com, it's a great way to keep on top of big tech news you might have missed. This new podcast takes what TechMeme is good at and distills it into podcast form. News headlines, context, and conversation around what happened today in the world of tech. And it's hosted by Brian McCullough, who also hosts the Internet History Podcast. New episodes come out every Monday through Friday, publishing around 5 p.m. Eastern Time. And each one is about 15 to 20 minutes long. To subscribe, just search your favorite podcast app for Tech Meme Ride Home. I'd also like to tell you about my other podcast, Too Embarrassed to Ask. Every week we answer your questions about consumer tech and the week's news. This week we talked to Dan Fromer from Recode about... Apple. What about All, it? all things about WWDC it? keynote. Right. Siri, AR, putting your phone down for once. Right. Anything else? 
How we uh, want shorter trunks on the iPod. Yeah. New, but no new hardware. AirPods. Software. No oh. new hardware. Right. It's all software. It's all software. Okay. You can find Too Embarrassed to Ask on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Too Embarrassed to Ask. See you there. Senator Warner, I wanted to ask, you just answered the question about your Republican colleagues, but what will the Democrats do if the president fires Rod Rosenstein or steps into the Mueller investigation? And the second part of the question is, Rudy Giuliani has said this weekend that the whole reason that he's out there with this campaign is because they're trying to fight against, against impeachment, meaning they think it's coming. You know, I'm not... I think the Democrats will be united in saying that was a red line. We've, you know, I started raising that issue with vis-a-vis Mueller before the holidays. And I think a lot of our initial reaction will be based on can we, if that barrier is broken, can't, will the country step up in a bipartisan basis or is he so, Mr. Trump, so kind of put us in our corners that, um, um, People are willing to have uh, an active, ongoing investigation of the President of the United States shut down for political purposes, or have the director of the FBI or part of the Justice Department reveal confidential information. If our country has gotten that partisan and people don't rise up in anger on that, we're in a bad spot. And then what happens? Stay tuned. <laughs> what, so what do the Dem- Go ahead, Luther. Yep. Okay. Senator. Um, Yesterday, uh, Brad Smith, the president of Microsoft, suggested that the U.S. <clears throat> versus Microsoft case uh, led to Microsoft kind of missing a moment uh, and oxygenated the markets, allowed for new entrants to come about. Do you think that antitrust enforcement is an appropriate way to address the um, concentration that gave bad actors the economies of scale, which led to the mass manipulation of our electorate? I don't think antitrust in the traditional way that American law has been applied, which is you know, the, the real basis is, is the consumer getting a cheaper price? Well, under that analysis, the consumer's getting a cheaper price. And I, but I do think there is something different between a Microsoft or even an Apple and the companies that, uh, the platform companies who literally, you know, we touch our phones 150 times a day, we give them more data about ourselves on a daily basis. That level of concentration uh, is, a, is of a different, I believe, of a different type. Uh, and, would you and call it, it a growing beast? I would, call it, it, I would call it kind of a holy heck moment uh, on a variety of ways. And you know, in a certain sense, again, one of the reasons why I'm not, I don't want to come in heavy-handed on this is that if we simply replace those entities American entities with Alibaba, Badu, and Tencent, and you have them combining their information with a billion people in the world of artificial intelligence, they start with a bigger N. That may give them a lead that no other company can catch up with. Uh, and I do worry that you know, the, everything I've seen on startups, if you're kind of in the app space, you, your ability to go to scale, you, you got one exit vehicle, and that's some of the big guys. So I, where this um, breaks out, uh, I, I'm not sure yet, but I think we ought to have these kind of, I think we should not be afraid of having these kind of conversations. I don't come in though, as a former business guy and tech guy, I was in the wireless business, the co-founder of Nextel, you know, I don't come in with the notion that a regulatory framework 
uh, is necessarily the right answer, because I've seen how that can screw up innovation. But you know, completely unfettered, uh, or don't worry, we're going to self-regulate alone, I just don't think that's going to cut it. Senator, you uh, referenced the Gang of Eight meeting earlier this week, or last week, I guess it was. Um, that's sort of reflective of the kind of atmosphere in the House. And I think you and Senator Burr have sort of tried to keep the collegial atmosphere of the Senate, the tradition, traditional atmosphere of the Senate. Do you fear that going away? Do you see anything uh, faltering in that sense of how the Senate has traditionally been, especially since with the president's uh, attitude towards Senator McCain, et cetera? Yeah, I, um, I think on a general basis, you know, Senate's a small enough club that you kind of know everybody. And I think most folks do generally get along. Um, you gotta, our political system right now doesn't normally reward you for getting things done with the other team. And that worries the hell out of me. I don't think the best politics or policy are made on the extremes. And candidly, both American political parties are so firmly caught in the 20th century that they wouldn't understand most of the sessions that are going on here. You know, I would like the political debate, and I was talking about this earlier, you know, the whole notion of work is changing. I mean, nobody's gonna work for the same firm for 35 years. Yet we had set up a social contract that was based on the, the notion that business, government, and labor, you're gonna be a long-term permanent W-2 employee. We need a new social contract that would have portable benefits. But you we think you said the Democrats should be pushing? Well, I think the Democrats, I think, either, I'm not sure it could fall into either camp, because it doesn't have to be all run by government. I think we ought to recognize, you know, we've got a, a real failure to invest in human capital. Why do we treat investment in computers as an asset and human beings as a cost? When we did a tax re reform, why didn't we say, we'll give everyone here a lower tax rate, corporate rate, to be competitive, but put in place a meaningful training program for everybody who makes less than $80,000 a year. If you don't have that constant upskilling, that notion that the old 20th century said it was the responsibility of the state to get you ready for that first job, but then it became the private sector's responsibility, that model is gone. You know, maybe we even need, I, listen, I did really well. Uh, I am a, as much a beneficiary First in my family to graduate from college, failed miserably a couple times. I've kind of lived the American dream. But I gotta tell you, modern American capitalism in its current form is not working for enough people. And that, and there are, I think, capitalist flicks as though. You know, there's nothing that says the business cycle has to be only focused on short-termism. Tech companies that have all done well, that's because the, the founders have kept a different class of stock that gives them the freedom to think long-term, yet most of the business cycle, most folks, are so committed on the, you know, that two cents quarterly earning. Something is weird when the average hold on a public stock's gone from eight years to four months. That is not the capitalism that created America post-World War II. So this ought to be the frame of where the debate's at, because that actually gives us a chance, because these don't break down Democrat-Republican, they're more future past, and there's real chance to put new coalitions together Absolutely. in the Senate or the House. Now you're more optimistic, one last one. Quick one. Yeah, Senator, uh, you mentioned that we're really acting in the 20th century as relates to things like warfare with Russia and others, and yet uh, in, and we're not in the 20, we're not acting in the 21st century. But a great deal of what's necessary would be the U.S. government itself applying the resources and, and budget associated to the cyber area. Do you think it's sufficient right now? And if it isn't, what are we doing about it? Here's one: it's not sufficient. Two, it's gonna to have to be done in collaboration uh, with the private sector, the cloud providers.
But here's, here's the, I've not been all that successful in the Senate, especially my first term, because I spent a whole bunch of time worried about our balance sheet. Uh, you know, we're 20 trillion in debt. We just borrowed another $2 trillion to provide a tax cut that was unpaid for. Here's the American business plan right now. Because of our spending on defense and entitlements and interest, of all the money you send to Washington, seven cents goes into education, infrastructure, and R&D. As a venture capitalist, I would never invest in any enterprise that only spent seven cents on workforce, plant, and equipment and staying out of the competition. Yet that's an American business plan because we've not told the public writ large the truth that we gotta make some choices. China is making the choices of investments in cyber, AI, you know, 5G, quantum computing. They're on a rate to pass us in three years. That to me is a national security concern as well as an economic concern. But you can't continue to have politicians you know, say, I'm gonna only cut your taxes when America's already 32nd out of 35 in terms of, of the 35 OECD nations in terms of overall tax burden. We're at the very bottom of the bat. And we gotta be honest on our entitlement programs. I think Social Security and Medicare are great, but the math doesn't work anymore for the future generation just because we're living longer. And a little bit of truth, and frankly, that's where I would urge you guys from the, the tech community, you need to help the, the politicians, not only on tech, but also you know, a little more urging with a little more truthfulness. All right, I, we have Thank to you. stop. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Are you running for president? I am, no, I am. I'm curious, you sound like you might be. No, what I'm, what I'm doing is trying to outline, one, trying to make sure we got our act together to make sure what happened in 2016 doesn't happen again. Two, I do, want to, I do want to make sure that these ideas get into the debate. And uh, I don't think the political divide right now with a kind of, I'm not sure where Trump has taken the Republicans or a, a kind of, only top-down redistribution plan that the Democrats may have. I'm not sure either one of those are where the economy's at right now. But so he said no. no. Yes? I'd say that's a no. I'd say All that's right. a no. All right. Thank All you right. very Thank much. You, Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to this interview from the Code Conference 2018. We'll be releasing all of the interviews from this year's event in this podcast feed and on Peter Kafka's show, Recode Media. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Recode Media with Peter Kafka to hear interviews with people like 21st Century Fox CEO James Murdoch, Spotify CEO Daniel Ek, and Facebook COO and CTO Sheryl Sandberg and Mike Schrepfer. If you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell other people about the show. And don't miss my other podcast, Too Embarrassed to Ask. You can find that show and Recode Media wherever you listen to Recode Decode. Thanks for listening to this special episode of Recode Decode. And thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then.